0: Well, we're very happy to be joined today by the uh, radio uh, voice of the New York Yankees or one of the radio voices of the New York Yankees and uh, also the lead voice of the WNBA on ESPN, Ryan Rucco. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. If uh, not for some turnovers down the stretch on Sunday, there would have been a Game 5 of the WNBA Finals today in Las Vegas. But instead, you get uh, probably a much-needed off day. Uh, So what we're going to talk about today, though, is primarily this situation with the New York Yankees and Aaron Judge. And uh, it's uh, kind of odd coming at it outside of New York City. It does not seem like there's a ton of interest in Aaron Judge hitting potentially 62 home runs, breaking the record of Roger Maris and, you know, becoming the all time home run leader in a single season in American League history. Uh, Is there something that the rest of the country is missing here about this Aaron Judge chase that you being, you know, part of it and seeing it up close can kind of, uh, you know, uh, illuminate us on?
1: Well, I mean, I think you know, for everyone in this area, and obviously all Yankee fans, it you know, it's a huge deal, and um, and his at bats have become must watch TV, and it's no surprise that our our yes Yankees ratings are you know the best they've been in eleven years, and and uh, and you know we've we've really uh, had some incredible numbers. That's thanks in large part to Aaron Judge and his home run race. Um, I think you know, for Yankees fans, the fact that 61 is Roger Maris's, you know, number for the American league record um, and that he was in a Yankee uniform when he did it, obviously 1961 was this magical season. The fact that 60 is Ruth, obviously another Yankee legend, I think adds to the intrigue and the excitement about this number. Um, You know, I think that, you know, I have some thoughts on whether or not it, it, grabs the same national attention it would, but just as far as your question goes, it's the things that maybe people are are not fully appreciating or seeing is like there are so many other things that Aaron judge is doing this season collectively. It's not just the home runs that make this one of the greatest offensive seasons in the history of baseball, whether comparing him to any of the guys during the steroid era, whether comparing him to Babe Ruth, I mean, what Aaron Judge is doing, when you look at the major league leader board and you see his name next to nine or 10 key categories, he's doing things that just have not been done before. Our, one of our head researchers I Yes, James Smythe, had this stat today about Judge and what he's done in a 55-game stretch. And I, I forget all the numbers of it, but you know, one of the things is 28 home runs. His batting average is like 380 or something during that stretch. Anyway, 55 game stretch. The only person who's ever done it, all these numbers uh, that James had as minimums was Babe Ruth. That's it in the history of baseball. So I think, um, you know, what we're seeing is it's, it's just it's, it's by far and away the most incredible offensive season um, I have seen anybody have in a Yankee uniform in my life.
0: You know, the interesting part of all of this is, and I read an article to this effect in the New York Post, basically the idea that Maguire, Sosa and Bonds ruined the home run chase, you know, with their steroid use. And there's probably some truth to that. Do you think maybe there's also just the element of baseball not being the kind of national pastime it was in the late 90s? Do you think that has something to do with it as well? The star power, even for a great Yankee player like Judge, is not what it was for a Jeter for example.
1: You know, I think judge is a pretty big star. Um, I understand, you know, the premise of, uh, of your question. And, and I definitely think we know that baseball doesn't have the same stranglehold on, you know, the, you know, American pop culture, the way it once did. Um, But I think judge cuts through that. I think he is actually a larger than life star. You know, he is, you know, the face of New York sports. Um, and I think that, you know, from what I've gathered anecdotally, I think there is a lot of interest nationally, but is it on the same scale as what we saw in 1998? Well, no, it's not because, you know, what we talk about when we talk about baseball is, is records. We're always the thing that, that linked national interest, right? Like you, baseball is a very local sport and you're with your team, you know, basically every single night for a six, seven month period, right? Um, but what captures us nationally is how rich the history is and people chasing that history, you know, whether it's the Cubs looking to break their curse, the Red Sox looking to break theirs, or the best example of this was always the home run record, which stood for so long, you know, from 1961 till 1998. So I think that, The premise of, hey, like, it's just not the same because it was broken so many times is probably where I would lean is that, you know, we saw it, you know, broken by Maguire, Sosa, Bonds. And obviously we then saw, you know, reasons to question the legitimacy of their breaking that record. Um, And because of that, I think it's desensitized us to the idea of a national home run, you know, chase the way that it would have been had no one ever passed 61 like regardless of where the sport of baseball is now compared to where it was in 1998 or where it was in 1961 if we didn't have mcguire sosa or bonds or anybody having broken that 61 prior to right now in 2022 i guarantee you it would be a massive national story and every single Aaron judge at bat we'd be cutting into to watch the same way we did with mcguire and sosa back in 98 in the same way we did with bonds is then he was chasing 70. So I think it's more that than anything else. And that's the part of it. That's a shame. You know, I, it is because there's nothing you can really do. You know, like we had that experience. We thought it was legitimate at the time. Obviously we ended up thinking something different in the years after. And so it's hard to then put that genie back in the bottle and have the record feel exactly the same. That's why I think for the Yankee fan, it feels different though, because Maris, holds the American League record and the Yankee record. That one feels real, obviously, and that one is about to fall at the hands of Aaron Judge.
2: Along those same lines, uh, you've done a lot of national work, and obviously we're going to get to the WNBA finals that John was referencing, but to grow up and be around New York and be around the Yankees and now be broadcasting the Yankees who are leading the division, who are looking like they are going to be one of the contenders to win the World Series, uh, depending on what happens in the postseason, and to have the Judge storyline and the record-breaking chase, a fun one. What is this like to be part of that? To be part of the broadcasts and to be energized, and maybe even a pseudo fan to a degree on some of the calls when Judge is coming up to the plate. What's that like for you?
1: It's awesome, man. I, I thought, you know, I thought often about kind of the the context of his home runs, um, as I was calling them. In August, I want to say, I, I I think that was the the series where I really was like, OK, because I forget what home run it was he hit because he hit a couple while I did uh, his series in Seattle between the Yankees and Mariners. And Aaron and I always joke because he always he always hits home runs in Seattle. And, and I always uh, am on the call of those games because it's a trip Michael K. usually doesn't take. And it, it was like I, there was some I was like, he has. He has a home run number, whatever. And it's only August 9th. Like that was in my call. Cause I was, you're just sitting there like, this is ridiculous. Like if this guy could lead the league with this number and we still have two months to play, you know? And then as I was thinking about it afterwards, I was like, you know, the cool part, I mean, one of the things that I think is really cool about doing play by play. And part of the reason I was attracted to it as a sports fan growing up is your voice becomes attached to the memories of these moments, you know, and for fans who are then going to, you know, watch some compilation of Aaron Judge's season or you know whatever documentary is done or you know any sort of, you know, season recap video or whatever it might be, you know, the calls of these home runs, not all of them, but a lot of them are going to be a part of that history and a part of the experience for the viewer and the listener as they've gone through this journey like oh, I you know always remember this one or that one or whatever. So I think I thought about it a little bit in Baltimore where he hit just a couple of absurdly long home runs uh, in a multi-home run game. And me and Cameron Mabin were talking about him as the best player in baseball and right on cue, he hit some. And then I really thought about it in Seattle. And for me, it's cool to think like, okay, you know, when they go back and review this season and and look at the home runs, you know, my voice is going to be attached to some of those memorable moments that help build uh, towards the crescendo that's coming.
0: You know, uh, obviously there's a series coming up in Toronto that you were going to do. John Sterling's going to do that instead. Was that kind of one of those uh, Vince Carter in 2003 situations where Vince is the starting uh, small, uh, shooting guard in the All-Star game and Michael's coming off the bench? So Vince <laughs> says, wait, let me let Michael start. Is that kind of like that?
1: Um, you know, I- I'll take the comp because I love Vince, uh, but I, uh, I, I actually, I think it was just, we were in late August and like I I was seeing where the uh, kind of the timeline of what judge was doing was going. And, you know, initially it was a series I was available for that I offered to do earlier in the year when WFAN and the Yankees were trying to piece together some of the road series that John wasn't going to do as he cut back his slate. Um, And, uh, and I kind of saw it coming and I was like, I just reached out to the, uh, WFAM boss, Chris Olivero, who's a terrific guy. And I just said like, Hey, um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing what's happening, something like this. And I was like, if, uh, if judge is approaching 61, I'm assuming John will go, will want to go back on those games. Is that correct? Um, and he said, John actually doesn't want to leave the country. Like those are your games, but in the back of my mind, I still thought like that might change as we get closer and that's okay. You know, like I get it. I totally get it. Um, I saw a lot of people who have kind of like, you know, on Twitter or whatever, Oh, this is messed up or whatever. And I really don't think it is at all. Like not at all. There's a reason why I reached out to Chris, you know, do I know like it would have been amazing to have that moment if it comes in Toronto. Yeah, of course. Like as a play-by-play guy, those are the, kind of moment you love to call and and do I have full confidence that I would have crushed it? Absolutely. But John Sterling has been the voice of the Yankees for three decades. He is his own unique highlight machine. And if he wants to call that moment, he deserves to call that moment. And there's no, there's not even the tiniest little bit in my gut that feels icky about it. Not at all. Like he, so I'm glad that he you know, with conviction decided, um, you know, with enough time to rearrange things and that, like, Hey, you know what? I should do it. Um, Chris called me back and he just joked. He was like, well, I guess you're Nostradamus because I know what I said at the time, but John just reached out and, um, I was like, dude, totally, totally get it. Like no problem at all. Uh, it's, it's absolutely the right thing to do. And John deserves to call that moment. Now judge may very well get it before Toronto. Um, But uh, but but John should be the voice um, or should at least have the the option to be the voice uh, of that moment when it comes. So it was uh, it was all good.
0: All right. And uh, before we uh, let you go, let's switch gears to the WNBA. Obviously, that just ended. You know, there's been a lot of people who call WNBA finals uh, quite a few uh, big names. Tom Hammond, uh, Mike Breen on NBC, Paul Sunderland. Uh, Mark Jones, Dave Pasch, uh, Terry Gannon. But for the most part, this has always been a very short-lived thing. I think Mike Green did maybe a couple. Of course, he did the most famous one with the uh, Theresa Brotherspoon shot. Yeah. But, you know, you've stuck around for quite a while now. And uh, I, I guess my question is, you know, it seems like for other folks, the WNBA has been just something they've done en route to something bigger why have you stuck around and how long do you see yourself continuing to be the voice of the WNBA?
1: That's a, uh, that's a good question, John. Like, because I think you're right um, that a lot of people, you know, have for, you know, all different reasons, right? Like they've been there for a brief moment and then moved on. And, uh, and I can remember even in the first year working with Rebecca and Holly, them joking with me, like, Oh, we're going to lose you soon. Um, But I think, you know, the initial thing that made me uh, fall in love with this job, this particular gig, was working with Rebecca Lobo and Holly Rowe. And I just felt like, first and foremost, they are both elite, elite, elite at their jobs. And then I think our chemistry as a team, I will put up against any broadcast team in the country. And I think that that really kind of drew me in to the excitement and then i got a feel for the basketball and how amazing it is and the women and how incredible they are um and how competitive this league is this is the toughest pro sports league to make in the united states and it's not close when you do it by the numbers and and you know how few roster spots there are um and just i also loved getting to call championships you know when you and they're one of my um bosses at the s network woody freiman uh, who he's, he's been, you know, a, a great, um, kind of sounding board and advocate for me since I was an intern, I guess, when I was 19 years old, when I first got the WNBA gig, one of the things he said to me was don't underestimate calling championships and how important that is. And I didn't know what he, you know, meant or didn't fully appreciate it at the time. But after calling a finals or two with the WNBA, I really did appreciate it. And I was like, Whoa, okay. Like it's special to have your voice be attached to the crowning moments of these, these organizations, these cities, um, these, these players, coaches, everybody involved. And then I also just got lost in how incredible the series were and the basketball, you know, and I think like watching the Minnesota Lynx dynasty and, and being a, a part of that, as I started, then the Lynx and Sparks rivalry, then seeing what Sue Bird and Brianna Stewart and Jewel Lloyd did in Seattle and some of these amazing series 2018 semis between Phoenix and Diana Taurasi and Brittany Griner and, and, and Sue and Jewel and Stewie in Seattle and, and it just kind of built on top of each other and at some point because I loved it so much and because I have seen the, the and take I've seen myself take great pride in the growth of the league um, and in being associated with it like that just no no longer was a thought of like, oh yeah, like this is, you know, just a a transient thing. This is instead for me, something I'd like to do, you know, with no end date. doesn't mean there aren't other things I want to do as well in my career, but I really, really, really love being a part of this league, being attached to its biggest moments, taking ownership of this gig, the people I work with and seeing the way the league is growing. And, you know, I would love to be the voice of the WNBA finals when we average a million viewers in the finals for the first time. And then we average 2 million for the first time and four, and those days are going to come. And uh, we're, we're getting the investment now uh, starting to that this league deserves. And so like, I wouldn't put an end date on it. You know, it doesn't mean it's going to be forever because obviously it's not just my decision. Um, But, but uh, it's something that I think, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to do for, for a long time.
2: We love the insight that Ryan is giving us here on the SportsMediaWatch.com podcast. So we kind of delve into this uh, a little bit with the the nuts and bolts and kind of the behind the scenes. I, I always love this. I'm fascinated by it. Uh, in this particular case, you had a Las Vegas team. They've never won a championship. So you're sitting in trying to contemplate, how do I call that moment? But you don't know when the moment's going to come because yeah. it could have been in game four. Certainly in game five, you know it's a winner-take-all game. How did you process process all of that in game four and at the same time, work on significant history. It's Las Vegas's first ever championship as a city, as right. an area. They so get it. Take us through how you went over that in your own head and with your team and wanted to do the moment right.
1: Yeah. I, um, so it's interesting because people have different philosophies on, like, you know, and I love the art of play by play. So I, I like these kind of questions and, and get to talk about it, but people have different philosophies on, you know, do you prepare anything? Do you think about saying anything? Do you just let the moment come to you? Like what, you know, how do you, how do you handle that? You know, um, spontaneity a lot of times is great because it breeds creativity. You know, part of what I like, uh, about calling home runs is because I don't have a home run call. I kind of never know what I'm going to say. And it just kind of comes in the moment and it can create some, you know, very unique, uh, you know, calls, memories, whatever. And that was something that my boss, John Filippelli at Yes Flip taught me years ago. Um, and, and I've loved that. And so if the, game, if, if the game is really tight down the stretch, right, like you're just going to be, let's say Vegas wins on a game winning shot. There's no call you're getting to that you've prepared, right? You're just kind of reacting to the moment and it takes you where it takes you. But it deserves a final call, Uh, not to keep shouting out people who are my mentors and and shepherds and stewards. But Frank DeGrace, our longtime coordinating producer for Nets on Yes, who to me is as good as anybody in the world at making broadcasters better. He uh, taught me a long time ago, no matter what the game is, like always have a final call at the buzzer. Like, doesn't matter if it's a 30-point game and it's the fifth game of the regular season or it's the playoffs, always have a final call. So, like, if you listen to me and Ian, like, we always have a final call at the end of every next game or any telecast we do. No matter what's going on at that moment, we always have a final call. Now, sometimes it's going to be, like, just reacting to a game-winning shot or whatever, and then sometimes it's going to be, you know, as the team holds the ball and the seconds drop off the clock and we all knew this result was coming for the last two quarters, right? But so what I like to do is I like to have a couple different things in mind for how I'm going to punctuate the championship with the final call. I used to kind of not think of anything ahead of time. And then just during the game, I'd see what would come to me and I'd write it down on my board. And then like, if I thought it fit the moment, I would use it. And if it didn't, I didn't care. I wouldn't use it. I'd just go with whatever. Um, now what I do is I, I try and come up with like, two or three or four different things that I think could be a good way to sort of encapsulate things. And then as long as one of them feels appropriate for the moment, I'll use it. If it doesn't, then I'll just go, you know, spontaneously. But so in this case, I had a couple different things and I actually, and this was the first time I did this I will sometimes run them by my wife. So that I, that I'll do. (laughs) Uh, And she loves getting to be involved like that. How often Uh,
2: does she give you the look? And I'm married too. John is not, I'm married too. how often does she give you the look of like, and you know, like, okay, no. Yeah, no, no. She she right away will
1: say like, that's it. Or that's not it. The funny thing is sometimes I'll say one that like, I don't think is great and she'll really like it. And then I'm like, okay, now if I go away (laughs) from it, she's going to think I'm offending her. No, (laughs) but I, I, uh, she, she helped. And she, we, had, I had a couple that ran by her. She kind of liked both of the two that I like best. And then I went to uh, Frank DeGrace, my next uh, producer I just mentioned. And I said, Hey man, like you're the best with this. This is what I'm thinking. Like I have these kind of thoughts in my mind. It's like a punctuation. What do you think? And he helped me kind of uh, narrow it down and, and, you know, tweak the verbiage a little bit. And then it's funny, my wife, reach back out to me right after I talked to Frank, just serendipitously and said, you know, I think I like this other one better, which is the one that Frank liked too. Um, so yeah. But so you then didn't I didn't tell liked- her
2: that Frank liked it. You told her you did it because she liked it because exactly, that's what married exactly. men do and they yeah. keep the boss happy and all is good, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. So yeah, so that's kind of like to dive into the weeds. It's kind of my thought process. So then like on my board, I wrote down like the one I like best, which is what I ended up using um and then a few other things in case i thought the moment hit and as the game full disclosure as the game was going back and forth it was so tight down the stretch i kind of thought like these aren't going to be used because it's just going to be a reaction to whatever happens on the given play but then once vegas went up seven with 20 you know seconds left or whatever it was i was like okay it might be appropriate and uh and it ended up uh i think you know being appropriate
0: so uh, you are, uh, I imagine, in your home right now, uh, yep. I believe you were the first one to call a national NBA game from your home, the preseason game, New Orleans and <laughs> Portland, right? Yeah. Uh, so you were kind of the guinea pig, the very first one. What was that experience like back in December of 20, that preseason game for ESPN?
1: Man, it's, Um, I was thinking about this today. I was like, wow, like I... Uh, cause we're kind of like in between places uh, right now. And, and we've been at our current apartment longer than we expected. Um, and I was like, wow, I like called an entire like NBA season from here. And then another one where I was back on the road and we're about to start another one, what's going on. Um, but it was weird, you know, like I think at the time we were just so grateful to have sports that we didn't think about it in the sense of like, Oh, like I can't be at my best in this setting, you know, instead it was just like a, Hey, this is how we have to do it right now, you know? And like, wow, the technology is good enough to do it. Now I did notice right away that like on the big monitor we were using, it was, um, like you get may eventually tweak this and tweak this and tweak this and made it better and better, but you get these like freezes where like certain things were hard to tell. So like that game, who was it? It was, was in New Orleans and Denver. Portland, Portland, Portland. There was some, there was somebody on Portland that I don't know who it was, but there was like, had a similar number. And I remember at some point misidentifying because I just couldn't tell, like looking. And I was like, well, okay, that's like, that may just happen sometimes, you know? And there's like, it wouldn't happen if I was sitting courtside, but it's just going to happen. I have to live with it, you know? But I also remember thinking like, this is pretty amazing to call the game and then just like walk into my bed. Um, like this is like, can't crazy. beat the
2: commute. Can't yeah, beat
1: the exactly. commute. That's Family sure. likes hey, that. I have,
2: know? I have one curious one because I know yeah. this uh, when Kirk Herbstreet was unable to call the college football playoff game that he was going to do for ESPN and ABC. I know a couple of the people that helped do the setup at yeah. his home. One of them said to me, he could have probably launched and landed a rocket from NASA with all of the monitors and all of the stuff they installed for him to be able to call that game replay monitor over here, Telestrator monitor over there. In those early days, were you just working off the one picture, the one monitor, Ryan? And that's all, that's all you got in the early days until you began, as you said, to tweak it, get other feeds, use your computer, whatever. How did it work for you real quick?
1: no, we had a, what we had right away is we had a big monitor that would be like to the right. And then in front of me, I'd have a laptop that was big and it would have, I could, I could kind of pick what screens I wanted. So I would have, um, like I eventually what I ended up doing was just having program in it because that picture would be a little clearer than the big monitor. And I thought it was beneficial for me to kind of just have those two things. Uh, then, but at one point I had, I'd have like the shot, I think, maybe at the end, I went back to this, I'd have like the shot clock up in scoreboard in one area, just in case something happened where I couldn't see it and or the bug went out or score bug went out. And I didn't know what the shot clock was. Um, and then I'd have the little zoom icons of my analysts, so that I could see them in real time when they're talking. So I know when they're about to talk, because what would happen is if you use the videos, slightly delayed. So like, I can't like go back and use any of those calls in like a demo reel because like to me, I hear that like I'm punctuating the call like after the ball's coming through the hoop and like I don't think the audience would ever know because it is so slight because of how incredible they did uh, with the technological setup. But like for me, I'm like, ah it sounds like just a hair a bit late. But like, so what happened is the audio to each other though was on time, but the visuals would be a little delayed. So if I had like a video of my analyst as like their camera shooting them, I wouldn't be able to see them start talking like I'd hear it before I'd see it. But if I had up the zoom thumbnail of them, that was real time. So I could tell exactly when they were starting to talk. So on my big monitor, I'd have little zoom thumbnails on the left side of it where I could see my analyst, see my statistician who would have like a whiteboard of notes or whatever. And, And then on my laptop, I'd have the game and then I'd have like the shot clock scoreboard to help me with that. So Yeah. I mean, it was crazy. Like, but we just at that time felt so grateful to be on the air, you know, now, like once everything felt okay for us safety wise, I think there was a real big push to get back out on the road because you just can't do the job as well. If you're not sitting there, you know, you just can't, is it like passable acceptable? Yeah, I guess, but is it great? No. And like, we should be in the business of things being great. And And I'm grateful that the leagues felt that way too um, because they want their product to be, you know, presented and, and broadcasted at its best.
0: All right. Just uh, one more quick one before we let you go. Uh, you have the opportunity to work with a lot of folks who I imagine you probably grew up watching, maybe even Rebecca Lobo, and she was playing in New York in the 90s, Richard Jefferson in, in New Jersey in the early 2000s. What is that experience like? Do you have any of that uh, kind of childhood awe still, or does you, do you just get used to it really quickly?
1: I think you get used to it quickly. Like There's some there's definitely some, you know, um, excitement, I would call it like, especially in the, in the beginning, like when you're like, wow, like I remember, you know, first time I'm going to get to do a game with Jeff Van Gundy. Like, this is amazing. You know, like that, that kind of feeling, um, for me, a lot of the guys, uh, I was a diehard Yankee fan growing up in the late nineties. And so like, you know, the first time I, I I had done stats when I was 19, 20, 21, 22 in the yes booth. So I got to know guys, but like first time I was in the booth working with David Cohn and Paul O'Neill, like these were were a huge deal to me, you know, um, getting to know those guys. And now them being my friends, it's like every once in a while, I will be like, you know, it's really cool that David Cohn and I are good friends, you know, like it's, it's (laughs) at this point, it's, you know, such a genuine friendship that it's not, you know, the, there's not like that veneer of like, you know, nerves or jitters or like that level of excitement anymore. Cause it's just my, just my buddy. But, um, but yeah, I think like for me, there's like a level of intrigue and excitement always in the beginning, you know, whether it's Rebecca Lobo, who I did grow up watching and rooting for UConn when I was, you know, eight years old, uh, you know, watching them when their their national championship, or, you know, if it's, um, if it's Richard Jefferson or Vince Carter, who I was obsessed with Vince when I was a kid, you know, whoever it might be, Chauncey Billups, you know, all these guys, QB Brown and Mark Jackson and Jeff Van Gundy and on and on it goes, you know, yeah. Like there is like, there is a part of me that's just like, this is cool, you know? So I don't think it's necessarily like a nerves thing. Um, I think it's a cool thing. And then I think that the thing that, resonates most or is most gratifying is when you can tell they respect your work, you know, like to know that, you know, Rebecca Lobo respects my work means a lot. To know that Ken Singleton, the broadcast of baseball games forever respects my work. That means a lot to know how much, you know, David Cohn loves working with me. Like that means a lot, you know? So those are the things where it's like, man, that's pretty cool. You know? Um, And I definitely, I don't take for granted just how fun and awesome my job is.
0: All right. That's a great note to end things on. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, looking forward to hearing you the rest of the way on the Yankee games and the NBA season is coming up as well. And I know TJ is happy to to talk to you as well. So
2: Hey, uh, Ryan, we enjoyed it. Great stuff, my friend. Thank you. And we, we, we will be listening. We'll not only be watching, but we'll be listening for what's up with the judge, home run chase, and the Yankees down the road.
1: Sounds great, guys. Thank you both for having me. I appreciate it. Love getting to chat about our business like this.
0: All right. Thanks again.
2: You say you'll never join the Navy.
0: Never track storms in the Atlantic or skydive as part of your commute.
2: Joining the Navy sounds crazy. Saying never actually is. Learn why at Navy.com. America's Navy, forged by the sea.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place.